you know, uh, uh, with her finger, uh, flay the, the pages and then stop and then put her finger down. And so in one of them it said, um, and Judas hung himself. So she thought, oh no, that's not good. But then so she flayed it again. And the next verse she found, she said, go ye therefore and do likewise. There you go. That's not the way to read scripture. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay, I'm glad I set us straight there. All right, so mistakes. That was, that's, a, that's a mistaken way of, um, of reading the Bible. And the truth is that we as Christians, regardless of what country we're from, um, often will mistakenly apply scripture. And all we need is uh, a, talk to a pastor, talk to someone else who knows better, and have a willing heart and a teachable spirit. And, and Father will use, he'll bring people into our lives that will uh, lead us and push us toward the direction that is life-giving. So today, the F word, if you haven't um, seen my post on Facebook, then you might be wondering what that is. The F word for today is forgiveness. And the reason I like the way that is put there, because it's not an original thought with my own, is that sometimes forgiveness feels very, very painful, very difficult, very challenging. And, the, and I, I can guarantee you that we have too many times followed the principle of forgiveness incorrectly. And so I found an article, I was telling Anne this morning, I found an article that perfectly um, noted what I wanted to say this morning. Because if you go to a library, especially a Christian library, you will find many books on forgiveness. What does that mean? That means that there's a lot to say about forgiveness, isn't it? And it's impossible to cover the entire span of it in a one Sunday morning teaching. So I narrowed down my focus, and I decided that this article, because it said exactly what I wanted to say, I'm going to read you the article. And what I was telling Anne is that, and I said this before in September or early October when I preached, as long as you give acknowledgement to the author, you can take it word for word, and it's not plagiarism. So here we go. The article was in Steps Magazine from the National Association for Christian Recovery, and it's an interview with David uh, Augsburger. He's a professor of pastoral care at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. So when, I, when my children were young, we have five. My oldest right now is 44. My youngest is 34. There are 10 years between them. But there are five years between number one and number two, and the last four came very, very close together. And what that meant when they were little was that there was a lot of crying. She took my toys. She won't listen to me. She won't be my friend because I had three daughters, uh, uh, three daughters and two sons. But the youngest was too young to be part of that whining group when they were all toddlers. Uh, yeah, I love whining. <sighs> no, I don't. Anyway, so... Um, I came, my, my childhood was violent, violent. Uh, I have a brother that's in jail for murder. So when I say violent, I mean violent. Um, totally dysfunctional and completely. And when I had my children, I was dysfunctional too. And for all I know, I'm still dysfunctional. But I'm, I'm 
not so much now as I was then. And so when my children were little and they were constantly crying, when, whining, I wanted to do something that was healthier than what I experienced in my own childhood and in my own young adulthood. And so I would have my children, of course, I'm not original in this, you have one sibling say I'm sorry to the other one, right? But I had the presence of mind to teach the one who had offended, you cannot just say I'm sorry. I, I insisted that they, with their mouths, confess the offense. So whether they were two or three or five or six or eight years old, they were required. I'd sit there with them, and I made the one that did the offense say, I am sorry I pulled your hair. And then I would have them say, please forgive me. And then the one who was wounded, I would wait until they forgave them. I want you to know that that was all wrong. My sermon is going to debunk that, and I'll, I'll explain why, and you'll realize why as I go through. But the part of it was okay, the part where I had them acknowledge what they had done. Now, if you have had children or if you've had any opportunity at all to uh, be in the presence of children who squabble, etc., you, you will uh, picture in your mind when I had my children do this, which was, you know, every single day, um, the one who was confessing, he obeyed the letter of the law, or she did. They didn't mean it. You could tell. I couldn't make them mean it. The best I could do was make them do what was right. And then the one that did the forgiving, he or she didn't mean it. But I made them do what, was, what I felt was right. They just didn't mean it. Uh, but they did it because I taught them to do that, and then they could go on and play and fight some more. Okay. So I have been seeing memes on Facebook. Are, how many of you are on Facebook? I can actually see you. Will you raise your hand? All right. If we're not friends yet, let's be friends. Um, my name is Teresa Maldonado. I, I actually have a double last name, Diaz Maldonado, but on Facebook, I'm Teresa Maldonado. But the cheater's way to do it, if you wish to be my friend, because I'd love to be your friend on Facebook. I don't know if about real life. You know, that's different. They might be asking more than I can handle. But... <laughs> On Facebook, if you look at somebody you're friends with here, look at their friends and you might find me and then uh, let's put in the friend request. All right. But I have been seeing on Facebook memes that say um, something like, I meant to look it up, but I didn't. Uh, but there's so many. You, you'll recognize it. Uh, I, I chose to forgive because unforgiveness uh, was a weight and a burden and I want to be free. So I'm forgiving you because I want to be free. And the first time I saw those memes, I thought, yes, yes, and that would be my comment. Yes, that's right, that's right. But after a while, it started to niggle, you know. It started to irritate me, and I thought, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this posture? What's wrong with this decision? What's wrong, what's wrong with this? And I believe it lays it out, article uh, in the magazine called Steps. So the first point was, uh, readers have been hurt by all the hurry up and forgive and forget. Have you heard someone, has anyone ever told you, you must forgive and forget? Doesn't that hurt when someone says, I immediately, um, I, I want to uh, acknowledge that this is a path that the Lord has directed and allowed me to walk. I have a high school diploma. My husband has a doctorate degree. He has 24 years of schooling. I have 12. 
with a few college courses. I have no credentials whatsoever to do so much of what I've done, even technically to preach. Some churches won't let you preach unless you have a seminary degree. There really are denominations that have that qualification. And so um, that the Lord allows me to minister for forgiveness, and then his response is, the 12 steps have a much better and more biblical instinct about what is appropriate if someone is, um, if we have injured someone. If we have injured someone, it is not appropriate for me to ask them to give me something. I've wounded you. Um, I've often thought of like the picture of Swiss cheese. When someone wounds you, it's as though there's a hand that digs deep into you and pulls something out, and you're left with a hole that honestly only God can fill. But some of us are, are, are barely able to move because of the holes that are inside of us from the wounding that has come. So he's saying, if, you, if I've wounded you, how can I ask you? It's, it's inappropriate for me to ask you to give me something after I'm the one that had offended and wounded you. What I need to do is become entirely ready for God to change me and then to make amends for the wrongs I have done. I have wronged you. This is a sentence that eventually in health we can say to the, those we've wounded. I have wronged you. I recognize that. I deeply regret what I have done. I will live now in a different way, and I hope that someday forgiveness will be possible between us. When we do it that way, we open up the barn doors, we, the, the metal bands become loose, and we both walk in freedom toward restoration and toward healing, <clears throat> healing and forgiveness. And now, <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I mentioned the name Jimmy Swaggart from the 80s. How many of you remember? I mean, he still ministers, his son ministers, but you remember the scandal uh, the scandal was that uh, he's a very well-known public, he had a very well-known public request for forgiveness some years ago. Will you run that? A moral mistake, and he's pulling away from the pulpit for a while. I have sinned against you, my Lord. And I would ask that your precious blood would wash and cleanse every stain until it is in the seas of God's forgetfulness. Thank you. Thank you. Now that looks as though he was really broken and contrite, right? That was on the heels of being caught and exposed for having sexual relationships with prostitutes. He had an enormously large ministry. He had a large uh, congregation. I remember hearing the news. I didn't verify it, but I remember hearing in the news. This was back in the 80s. He had like a, a in the hundreds of millions of dollars was what came in and what was spent. I don't know how much of that was spent, but hundreds of millions of dollars, over 100 million of dollars. Now, if this is on the heels of being dis exposed, because he didn't expose himself, he was exposed. And then he goes up in front of the congregation and does this. Can the people say no? Do you understand that he cried and I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, judge him? 
I'm going to judge him and say that that was manipulation. And uh, I'm not saying that he slept that night and fasted and prayed so that he could come up with a way to manipulate. But this is what happens is that when, when we wound, I'm going to talk as though we are the ones who wound. When we wound others, if we express uh, contriteness that way, right away, what can the person say? It's like it pressures them. And it's, it's not good. Let's not do that. Um, so then David says, who is the, the professor of uh, pastoral counseling, sure, but it's a good example of the kind of pious blackmail I'm thinking about. When any, uh, when any of us requests forgiveness, how can the injured person say no, especially if they're still in shock or disbelief about the injury? They don't know what's hit them yet but they are already being asked to forgive. Won't it later feel like the asking for, the for and the giving of forgiveness skipped some critical steps that make authentic resolution of the injury almost impossible? The news reporters went to the congregation and asked the people, let me tell you, he was overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly supported by those who knew him in the church because, you know, I only know him from what I hear about him, but he was overwhelmingly supported. The people loved him so much. They did forgive him immediately and quickly. So did the people who attended his, I keep pointing backward as though he's there. I know he's not, but that's that's what works for me. Um, So did the people who attended all the conferences that he did. Sure, some of them fell away, but overwhelmingly, the people stuck it out because they knew him more intimately than I did, and and they didn't want him to be uh, uh, set apart with uh, rejection. They didn't want him to be rejected and, and disqualified to do ministry. And so they did, and I believe that they were sincere when they were quick to forgive. It's just that it's not the healthy way to do it, and that's all there is to it. So what do you do if someone asks you for forgiveness and, are not, and you are not ready? Well, you can say something like, I too want forgiveness to be real between us. Can we work on it until we know that we've experienced it together? You know what? I don't know how many of us have the presence of mind to say that. But if we, you know, like when we're not in the situation, why don't we just practice that? That's what Lamaz is, you know. You practice uh, labor when you're not in labor so that when you are in labor, you've practiced it and you've inculcated into your muscles and your memory, uh, physical and mental memory, what you're supposed to do when that pain feels like you're being sawed in half and you have no anesthesia. Yeah. So, uh, and you do remember because when you didn't need it, you, you practiced it. So let's practice doing that, talking that way, thinking that way. So I'll say it again. Um, I, too, want forgiveness to be real between us. Can we work on it until we know that we've experienced it together? All right, so then the question is, should we also forget about giving forgiveness? And then David says, I suppose um, one of the most common ways to abuse forgiveness is to grant forgiveness preemptively without appropriate process. So... We can forgive too soon, or we can leave out important steps in the process. Are there any times when it's appropriate to just forgive immediately, without conditions, without repentance? Yes. If an injury happens as the result of an accident, where there is no intention to hurt, or where there was limited ability or capacity to prevent the injury, then we are to forgive freely and generously. You know, somebody dents your car, uh, your child 
well, if your child dents your car, you're going you're gonna to get upset, right? Uh, but let's say your neighbor, you, and your neighbor dents your car. You know it's an accident. That's the definition of an accident. They didn't do it intentionally, because if they were going to do it intentionally, they might have actually totaled your car. Uh, but no, it's a mild dent. And so an accident is completely different from a willful hurt. I, this is another thing that chafes me, is when people uh, call sin um, a mistake. Let me tell you what a mistake is. Putting a red sock in white laundry where everything comes out pink. That's a mistake. Adultery is not a mistake. Punching uh, your spouse, by the way, women abuse men, so punching your spouse is not a mistake. Taking the money that was supposed to be used to pay the bills and the rent and gambling it is not a mistake. Those are willful acts of selfishness and sin, and they bring wounding and bruising. It is not a mistake. And I like to uh, make that distinction. And if you want to be my friend, you must too. Just putting that out there. All right. Okay, so when you recognize that the person who injured you is not really responsible for what happened, then you can give forgiveness freely. And then what happens is that often when we, when we do something that's hurtful to another person, we'll say, I'm sorry, that's not me. Um, I didn't mean it. Well, I heard a teaching one time um, where uh, it's biblical. Jesus says it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out. And so if it came out of you, it is you. It may not be the way you act all the time. It may be the first time that you acted that way. You might be shocked that you did it, but we cannot say, oh, that's not me. Because guess what? It came from you. Yes, it is you. And when we actually embrace that, and acknowledge it, that's when we can begin to overcome that behavior and get beyond it and be a healthier, more godly person. Um, Jesus' words from the cross. Here's where, uh, uh, you know, uh, forgive them for they know not what they do. It says, that does not mean that everyone at the foot of the cross was automatically forgiven for eternity. Um, independent of their commitment to repentance. One thief was forgiven and one wasn't. Jesus didn't do a blanket forgiveness over everybody. He was particularly acknowledging the ones that were saying, kill them, kill them, kill them. But they had joined the crowd mentality. They, they're not the ones who made the decisions to betray Jesus and to get him executed by the Romans. And so Jesus acknowledged that sometimes people are swept up into a behavior that is sinful and wrong. And so he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. But it doesn't mean that everyone who was there was forgiven. Isn't that powerful? Have you ever thought about that? When I read that, I thought, whoa, whoa. I forgive you, this is David still speaking, may only mean that I refuse to look again at the injury that you have caused. In this kind of denial, both the person who is injured and the person who is responsible for the injury are devalued. If we really value each other, we commit to the process of healing and restoration. So then I can remember times when I've said, I forgive you just to get people to leave me alone. Does that resonate with anybody? It's like, shut up. <laughs> I forgive you. Can we just go on to something else? 
and then David says, exactly, that's not the kind of forgiveness that Jesus talks about. The goal of forgiveness is not to make the problem or the person go away. It is always to regain the brother or sister at whatever level is appropriate. So then he says, uh, the question is, forgiveness doesn't always mean a return to intimate relationship. David says, forgiveness never returns us to things as they were. Did you hear me say that? Listen very carefully. This is profound. Forgiveness never returns us to things as they were. It is never just about restoration of a relationship to a former state. The relationship must change as a result of the injury. Otherwise, the forgiveness is just a form of denial. Take the example of a father who has sexually abused his daughter. As an adult, the daughter confronts him and through a long process comes to forgive him. Suppose he then says, I want things to be like they used to be when I could have time alone with my grandchildren. To return to the old relationship and to allow that privilege would be irresponsible and dangerous. To construct a new kind of relationship means that we must have time to know that he, or she, because women sexually abuse children too, that he is fully and completely trustworthy. Towards the end of the long process of forgiveness, a responsible daughter will say, no, we will not return to how things used to be. This is at a place of healing and a place of forgiveness. Listen very carefully. I welcome you back into relationship with me and my family but things are not the same. You may see the grandchildren, but only with me present at all times. The father may say, see, you haven't really forgiven me, but forgiveness does not mean returning to business as usual. Amen? I used to use the illustration that if somebody in the church uh, staff, the one who, uh, who uh, counts and deposits the money, our good friend over there, Jen. Um, but they steal. They steal. They're discovered for stealing the money. And like a lot of money, it becomes, you know, some churches don't report things to the police because they can't handle the public shame or the scandal. So often the person will just be removed from that, and then they'll, they might impose a form of discipline. But then the person will often say, can I be the treasurer again? And a healthy church and a healthy pastor and staff will say, heck no. We love you. We're not going to reject you. We're not going to teach, uh, treat you like a third-class citizen. We love you. You're restored, and you can serve, but nowhere near money. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you go back to business as usual. I see some of you shaking your head, and I, I appreciate that you have the value in your heart already. Um, to return to a civil relationship may be an enormous achievement in situations like this. A return to intimacy may never be possible or appropriate, and it is certainly not required as a part of forgiveness. Talk to me about the role of memory in forgiveness, about the forgive and forget. David says, I remember a pastor's wife whose husband had a series of affairs with women in their congregation. In about our third session together, when the husband had finally emerged uh, enough from the shame to be able to talk with her about the loathing he felt inside, 
uh, often people who are perpetually and habitually sinful, we think they're arrogant. Their behavior looks as though they're arrogant. And uh, we think that they feel above it, but really that's often just posturing. They hate themselves from within. They know what they're doing. They're not, they're not dumb. They know that what they're doing is bad. But for some reason, they don't have enough self-control or enough healing to quit doing the sin and uh, turn away from it. So they have self-loathing. This pastor did, had this. And so uh, he immediately said to her, will you forgive me? Third session, he came to the place where he was able to ask her. And she said, oh, no. I don't want our relationship marked forever by my being in a position where I forgave you. Besides, I want to know what part both of us may have had in the blindness that allowed this to happen. I want to make sure we work through this. I never want you to think that I take what happened so lightly that I could forgive you, uh, that I could forgive either you or me before we even really understand what happened. I thought, this is David now speaking, I thought this was a good example of a stubbornly brilliant refusal to forget. Forgetting tends to be a kind of sweet, pious denial blended with memory fatigue. You go tired of remembering and you long once more to have a mind that is free from the review of the injury. That's what happens when we do what my children did. I forgive you. I'm sorry. I forgive you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. When we do that, we know it's not real. And those of us that give forgiveness that way, uh, we're often tormented by the memory. It keeps coming back. And we, and we try to be godly, and we give it to Jesus, and we take every natural thought captive and put it under submission to, at the feet of Christ. But it keeps coming back. And the reason it does is because real forgiveness didn't happen. So one, this is the question again. One thing that makes the whole topic of forgiveness particularly uh, difficult for Christians is the extraordinary pressure we feel about it. So David says, we're held hostage by a misinterpretation of the lines just following the Lord's prayer. If you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive yours. Let me tell you, I, I am very legalistic. I'm prophetic, and that's one of the flaws of uh, people who are prophetic. We, you know, it's like, Lord, rain down your holy fire. Leave that person nothing but a heap of ash. There you go, Jack, thank you. You know what that, you know what I mean. That's the, that's the way we think. It's like, uh, if, you, uh, if you sin one way just once, you're condemned. It's, you know, the way we think. Um, <clears throat> so then he, it says here, um, Quick forgiveness leaps from about step two and a half to step 12. Remember that this is a 12-step program organization, and that's what he's referring. It skips all the hard work. Most of us would love to do that. We do steps three, four, five, and six particularly. Uh, Why? Why do steps three, four, five, and six uh, particularly? In context, they know what that is, but at some point, the person who is going through the through the 12 steps, is supposed to go, is supposed to make that they've made, and to as much as possible, go to the people that they have wounded, their children, their spouse, their, if they're not married, their, their siblings, if they don't have any, their parents, if they're still alive, if not, their boss, their co-workers, their neighbors, anybody and everybody who was injured while they were addicted 
to whatever it was, whether it was a sexual addiction, uh, um, any addiction whatsoever, uh, the, the gambling and any narcotic or alcohol. Um, another way to talk, uh, to talk the theological, oh, theologically about this is to say that we want resurrection without the cross. Does that hit home? Isn't that powerful? We want to get to the resurrection. Let's get to the happy part. Let's get to the good part. But they don't understand that the cross, you can't have resurrection if you don't have the cross. We delude ourselves. We're deceived if we think we can walk in the resurrection gift of forgiveness and healing and restoration if we did not experience and visit the cross as a part of that process while we're pursuing healing in relationships. The cross is just too troubling. One of my teachers used to say that therapy is akin to worship. When one is counseling, the proper attitude is a sense of profound reverence for what God is doing in this person's life. When I led the support groups and I saw the women uh, transformed by God, listen, a, a a good leader of a support group doesn't teach. You facilitate. You let the the participants in the group uh, process and, and you lead it. You keep them on task, but you don't teach, 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 because then they're just, you know, they, they shut down. And so um, he said, I took him a tape, this man, uh, I took him a tape of a counseling session. I was so pleased with the session because I thought that it marked a dramatic breakthrough in the life of that client. And I said, now I understand when you mean that therapy is akin to worship, and that's what I want to say. I used to cry in the group when I saw a turn when I saw that God had done something, I couldn't help it. I would just sit there and cry because I, I saw God. I saw his kingdom and I saw the miracle. I don't have the healing gift to see limbs grow or uh, cancer healed, but God has anointed me to walk people through emotional healing. And to me, it's, it's equal. I'm not trying to equal myself to people who have um, this gift. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that that's as much a miracle. It is absolutely as much a miracle as growing a limb, as resurrecting the dead, as being healed from cancer. When God heals your heart, when you've been devastated, crushed, and wounded by one or several or many people who have hurt you. So then he says, now I understand what you mean that therapy is akin to worship. And he said, oh, no, you don't. Last week, when the person was struggling so intensely with their depression and could not find a way through, God was at work in that struggle just as wonderfully as here in the breakthrough. Only when you appreciate God's presence in the struggle do you have any right to talk about God's presence in the breakthrough. Amen. When we're struggling, we feel abandoned and alone. We feel as though God is far away. There's even a cute little saying for that. When God feels far away, guess who moved? You know, that's called blaming. Um, But we need to acknowledge when we're struggling, when we're connected to that pain, whatever it is. And let me tell you, sometimes it could be a little thing. Sometimes it's being slighted. Sometimes it's that someone else got promoted and you thought you were going to get the promotion. Little thing. I mean, that's not a little thing. That's a big thing. What I'm trying to say, it's not always rape and abuse. Um, Little things. 
Little things can hurt us just because we're tender and we have feelings. If, if we don't get hurt, if you're going to tell me after the church that you've never been hurt, um, let me be the one to tell you right here, right now, before you come up, you're locked in a, in a tomb if you've never been hurt. Because being alive includes getting hurt. It's part and parcel of living. It seems like when we, I've got only a couple minutes, I'm sorry about that. Uh, Let me see. It seems like when we look closely at forgiveness, we find ourselves talking about healing. All right, so I want to get to um, an authentic apology. It's important to distinguish between a true apology and either an appeasement or what I call an account. This This is now an instruction on how we might express an apology. Um, An appeasement is when I suck up to you and put myself down. I grovel, I I, I might say, I was rotten, it was rotten of me, I am terrible. I grovel at your feet until you say, you've groveled enough now, you can stand up again, it's okay. In this process of appeasement, I suck you into forgiving me because my talking so badly about myself makes you feel bad about the relationship or bad for me. Afterward, the person who was tricked into forgiving by the appeasement finds themselves feeling resentment because there was no justice to it. A similar avoidance happens when I give an account rather than an apology. A true apology, by contrast, involves simply saying, I deeply regret what I did. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I will not act that way in the future. If there's any explanation to be offered, of why I acted the way I did, it can wait for some other conversation. For now, I apologize. Amen? Will you remember what I said? Maybe you won't, but if you ask Holy Spirit to remind you, Holy Spirit will. Amen. The important thing is that we've hurt another person. We should say, someday I will want to talk to you about all the dynamics and complications and reasons. But just now, what is important to me is to tell you that I'm deeply sorry. And then this is the last part that I'll say because this is, in my opinion, really fantastic. So he says, there has been an injury, and this is uh, the magazine asking, there has been an injury, and the person responsible for the injury is either dead emotionally unavailable, or they don't acknowledge the injury. What can you do when that happens? And um, for some of us, it might have been our parents. They're dead. In my case, my mother is dead, but my mother had a personality. uh, The way she was wired, I knew I could never, ever go to her and say, hey, can we talk about this? Let me tell you the ways. Uh, that, that you wounded me. That, that was just never going to happen. And, and I understood that instinctively. And so um, there are times when, when we need to forgive, just as that meme says, when it's otherwise impossible. The person is unapproachable completely, or they're dead or too far away or whatever. So then David says, I tried to coin a word for this. Instead of forgiveness, I talk about for grieving. I think that when the person responsible for the injury is completely detached, emotionally dead, or physically dead, to talk about forgiveness is a kind of nonsense. There is no emotional transaction possible, no authentic recognition or repentance. 
So the only transformation possible is a kind of internal release, not a transformation in the relationship. I think that what we really do in circumstances like this is to grieve for grieving. So most people will be familiar with the idea of that grief is part of the process. And then you know what grief is. You go through stages when you're grieving. You get angry. First, you're in denial. I don't know all five steps. I don't remember them. I should have written them down. There's so many things while I'm preaching that I think, oops, should have done that. Um, but you know the steps. Uh, uh, denial, anger. Anger. Anybody else know the other steps? What? Sh- what? Bargaining. Bargaining. Sadness. Sadness. And then? Acceptance. What? Acceptance. Yes. And so um, when, we, when we have to, when we're connected emotionally with the wounding and that it's impossible to deal with or process with the person who did the wounding, if we, if we go to God and we say, Father, I need you to take me through the healing process, the restoration. I can't do it with them. Do it with me. Let me Give me the grace to say out loud where nobody can hear but you, but I'll say it out loud so that my ears can hear it. And I'll name the things that, that hurt me. And I, uh, I want to say, I want to come to the place of healing. Help me get there, Lord. Help me get there. Now I feel uh, better equipped when I deal with people because uh, this, as I said, this article said things that were right in line with what has been the meditation of my heart. And recently I have told a few people in, in the opportunity that I had to say it that I used to distinguish with the women in the group between I cannot forgive and I will not forgive. Two different things. Cannot means I'm so raw, I'm so hurt, that I I just can't even see that happening. I can't do it. And I never chastised those women, never. Because I knew that as long as they committed to the process, Father would bring them to that point, even if it took years. I didn't expect it to happen in two sessions or three sessions. One group that we met, there were uh, 14 women who came very regularly. We met for three years. And, and through there, through that time, many of the women came to the place where they could forgive. Now, the other one, the other one comes from a place of wounding and anger and a desire for vengeance or a misconception. It's like, I'm not going to forgive. I refuse to forgive because they have sounding in their mind, forgive and forget. Forgiving does not mean forgetting. Now, you can't get, Ray, Ray and I have a joke between us. When, I, when we have an argument, which, you know, I think is every day, um, pretty sure, at least once a day. Uh, not Ray, he doesn't argue, <laughs> the other person in the house does. But anyway, what Ray says is, Teresa doesn't get um, hysterical, she gets historical. <laughs> because I'm able to tell him, listen, it was a Tuesday, you were standing by the window, it was raining, you had this particular shirt, and this is what you said. And he'll say, what? I don't remember. Huh, let me tell you the next time you said it. And the next time, no, you're not going to win this argument, you did that. And so Ray says, okay, you're really getting historical here. Can we just kind of pause right now? Uh, because I have a perfect memory for that, but I don't know your name. You see my priorities right there. I refuse to forgive can often be a very sinful posture, but it comes from hurt. And so I don't want, you know, I've mentioned the word manipulation and sincerity. 
I just want everyone here to hear those who wound, uh, Anne even quoted this to me, wounded people wound others. And then those of us that have been wounded, we may not have been ever committed those same acts of uh, sinfulness, of hurtfulness, etc. But we hurt, we hurt other people too. None of us, none of us is perfect. None of us do it all correctly all of the time. And so healing has to come to both sides. And God wants to heal us. He will heal us. He will. Let me see if the verse still stays is here. Because we sang the song, um, and I, Trish, I know that you, you knew that it was forgiveness, and it was right after communion, and forgive me. Forgive me, right? Forgive us, O oh Lord. Uh, forgive. So, um, oh, darn. Let's see if I lost the passage. I did. Well, it's in 1 John, 1 John 1. It says, if we confess our sin, sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. On the one hand, the day that we come to faith, we're forgiven. Every sin we ever committed and every sin we will commit. That doesn't mean that we don't in our relationship with God until the day we die, unless you die five minutes after you get saved. In our relationship and walk with Christ, we have times daily where we need to confess our sins. And what I love about it, what I love about Scripture, it says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say if you kneel on rice for, for an hour in a corner, he'll think about forgiving you. It doesn't say that at all. It doesn't say we have to earn it in any way, but we must ask for it. He has not given us a blank check where we can just behave the way we want to without having any regard for whether or not it's godly, whether or not it's in line with the will of God or, or even uh, social mores where, come on, you don't have to be a Christian and go to church to know certain things are wrong, right? We don't have a blank check. We're forgiven, yes, but we must ask for forgiveness. And when we do, with God, because he's perfectly healed, he's perfect, he's the only one who can forgive us instantaneously, and it's good and healthy. But God knows, first of all, he knows everything. But secondly, what matters is that we, it's cheap when we just say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and nothing in our behavior changes. And he knows that. He knows that. And so even when we talk to God and confess our sins, we must make a commitment and make an effort to not do those things and not behave that way.